a portion of that uh, section, verses uh, 5 through 9, from the Amplified Bible, because that's what we're going to be referring to, and I thought it would be very helpful for you to have that. This morning, our theme is Bethlehem and Calvary and the call to humility. Bethlehem and Calvary and the call to humility. Just a little later in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has the Apostle Paul to write in verse 21, For all seek their own and not the things of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, For there are many of whom I have spoken, and now I tell you, even with tears, who live as enemies of the cross, whose fate is destruction, whose God is their belly, their worldly appetite, their sensuality, their vanity, and whose glory is in their shame, who focus their mind on earthly and temporal things. Father, give us grace to hear the word of the Lord, to embrace it, to be humbled where we need to be humbled, to rejoice where we need to rejoice, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this is really an astonishing portion of Scripture. Those who have read and rejoiced in the epistle to the Philippians know that it is called the epistle of joy and rejoicing. That's a major theme. But in the midst of writing about that, the Apostle Paul, as he thinks about some of the things that are going on in that congregation, even as he's writing, he's weeping. He's weeping because of the selfishness, the conflict, the worldliness that was destroying that congregation. Well, what is the solution? For Philippi and for us, the Holy Spirit has the Apostle Paul to set Jesus before us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus. And he sets before us not only the cross, but he sets before us the incarnation. God come in the flesh. Both of those being extreme examples of the humility of Christ. So looking at your scriptures there from the Amplified, verse 5 through 8, or I may have 9, have this same attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Look to him as your example of selfless humility who although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God as one with him, possessing the fullness and all the divine attributes, the entire nature of deity, 
did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped or asserted as if he did not already possess it or if he was afraid of losing it. But he emptied himself without renouncing or diminishing his deity, but only temporarily giving up the outward expression of divine equality and his rightful dignity by assuming the form of a bondslervant and being made in the likeness of men, he became completely human, but was without sin, being fully God and fully man. After he was found in terms of his outward appearance as a man for a divinely appointed time, he humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to the Father to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So here we have Bethlehem and Calvary, where we have the most extreme demonstrations of humility. Go forward 2,000 years and go all over America in the spring of the year or in December. And churches all over the world will be making and presenting grand productions. And nobody will walk away saying, wow, humility. They'll walk away saying, wow, what a presentation. Best I've ever heard. Better than the professional actors in New York City, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or even down to the little village church. Wasn't that precious? Weren't they cute? I'm so proud of my child or my grandchild. Now, we're all sincere. We mean well, but all I'm trying to point out is when God presents this, there's no pretense, there's no, there's no uh, trying to make a show. There is an obvious, genuine demonstration of humility. And when the angels sing, it's not a production, it's an astounding joy because of this grand revelation. If you go back to these verses again in Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, there is so much that is in these verses. The deity of Christ, the preexistence of Christ, his equality with God the Father, his incarnation, God in flesh, the reality that Jesus really was human, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and then his ultimate reign over the whole universe, being verse 9 and following. What's the point of all of this? First of all, when the Philippian Christians would have received this and, and now for us. For a church, for an individual, on Monday morning where you work, or your family, or in the church, or wherever, to win the battle over pride. You ever have one of those? or over selfishness, over anger. The Philippian church was being destroyed by such as that. 
We've had our own destructions, haven't we? Families, churches all across the nation. The Holy Spirit points us to the incarnation of Christ and to his cross. You know, this tells us that we need to put Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 in this context. Many people just see it as a story to be read in December rather than a portion of scripture that is to be totally integrated in our life every day, every month. And to be tied in with this passage because the story that is being revealed there, the historical account that's being revealed in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 is a revelation of humility on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we tie it in with the Philippians 2, in case we've missed the point, he wants it to be flowing through our lives, that we walk in his steps. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So this is how the Holy Spirit has us to respond to the birth of Christ. No one in the New Testament uh, thought about the birth of Christ and said, you know, we need to do some reenactments. We need to have some productions. We need to have a big show. No, the miracle of a transformed life flowing out of beholding the humility of Christ, destroying pride, raising up the glorious demonstration of people walking in humility. That's where where God is calling us. Think about it. Jesus humbled himself. The creator of the universe lay in a virgin's womb. He humbled himself. He's in a trough where animals feed. The eternal, the eternal God, who's equal and eternal with the Father, humbled himself and was obedient to earthly parents. He humbled himself. His companions and his friends were fishermen and tax collectors and sinners and little children. Jesus humbled himself. He gave up all of his riches in heaven for the sake of sinners. We we can't comprehend that. But the Bible makes a point of that. Paul writing to the Corinthians said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, Consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, his astonishing kindness, his generosity, his gracious favor that though he was rich yet for your sake and my sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich abundantly blessed this is what God is up to he humbled himself He was tempted in all the ways that we are, yet he never gave in. You probably had some times in your life when you were fighting against sin and and almost the longer you fought, the pressure was rising like water uh, on a dam. And the the more water, uh, the more pressure. Jesus was never without pressure. 
He was tempted in all points as we, but without sin. He humbled himself. He suffered. He had thirst. He had hunger. He was slandered. Has anyone ever slandered you badly? You know how that hurts? Some said he's a drunkard. He's a wine-bibber. Some says he has a demon. He's insane. He's mad. For 33 years, he lived under the cloud of being a child of fornication. Jesus humbled himself. He who, in the presence of all the angels, they, they hide their faces as they bow down and worship him. This same Jesus volunteered to come to be despised and rejected. The Bible is very plain about that in Isaiah 53 verse 3 in prophecy. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We did not appreciate his worth nor esteem him. He humbled himself. He learned obedience from the things he suffered, the book of Hebrews tells us. He humbled himself all the way to the cross. We sinners have an appointment with death. When Jesus humbled himself all the way to death on the cross, he was not walking down that road because he had an appointment. My friend Jack Evans last Sunday night was in choir practice. And now he's in heaven. He didn't have any idea when his appointment was, but he had an appointment. We all have an appointment. Jesus didn't have an appointment. Because he had no sin. Death had no claim on him. But we have all sinned. It's appointed unto us once to die. And then the judgment. We've earned these wages. Even the wages of the second death in hell. But Jesus had not earned such wages. Death had no claim on him. He humbled himself. As a sheep before her sharers is dumb. Does not cry out or protest. So Jesus opened not his mouth. He humbled himself as he became the sinner's substitute the sinner's sin bearer he humbled himself the spotless righteous lamb of god who never sinned in word thought or deed but he became sin for us judicially he did not become sin in the sense that he literally was of his own accord and of, of, of things he did, thought or said, was now guilty as a sinner. Our sin was placed judicially upon him. And so in that sense, he became, as it were, a sinner. And therefore, death had a claim. He humbled himself. He willingly took upon himself our debt. All of us, Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. 
We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord, the Father, has laid on him our sin, our injustices, our wrongdoing. They fall on him instead of on us. So he humbled himself to the painful, shameful, accursed death on the cross. He purchased our freedom. He redeemed us from the curse of the law and its condemnation. For by becoming a curse for us, that was a price of redemption. Cursed is everyone who hangs crucified on the tree. Jesus humbled himself. He died, not as a hero, but as a criminal, accursed. He was tried in the courts of men and they found no fault in him. They hung him anyway. Jesus was tried in the court of God and found guilty. Not of his own sin, but because he took upon himself our sin. The sinless one became the most guilty of all. He humbled himself. So there he hung. And people scorned him. And God, his father, poured out upon him darkness, covered the earth. And God, his father, poured out on his most beloved one his wrath. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A wrath which we deserve, but Jesus willingly received in the sinner's place. Yes, Jesus humbled himself. And because of that, we have a table to come to. But aren't you glad that the Bible doesn't end with Ephesians, I mean with Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. We continue on with verse 9. For this reason, also, because he obeyed and so completely humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in submission of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess and openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, sovereign God, to the glory of God the Father. You may confess him because he's your Savior, or you may confess him because you have to acknowledge he's your judge. But every human being that's ever lived or that ever will live will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. You don't want to have to confess it with him just being your judge. Well, so let's pause, as it were, and ask ourselves, uh, are there some lessons for us here? Well, the chief one, of course, is to have faith in his atoning sacrifice. We don't want to come to worship God with our fruits and vegetables like Cain did. 
there may never have been a greater display or a finer display of the fruits and vegetables he brought is he came to worship the true and the living God. But those fruits and vegetables had nothing in them that gave any indication that Cain was a man who knew he was a sinner or that he was a man who had received the word of God that the only way a sinful man can relate to a holy God is through a blood sacrifice. And so his offering was rejected. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved because only Jesus became our blood sacrifice. So lesson number one is where we have to begin. We've all sinned. We need forgiveness. We have no way to obtain it. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The blood of animals will not do. But Jesus, in his humiliation, in his humility, shed his blood. Flee to him. If you've never fled to him, if you've never come to him, come to Christ. There's no other way. There's no other name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, another lesson is this. Christ's humility and his humiliation should cultivate in us a great and growing hatred for sin. Look what sin caused Jesus to have to go through in order to bring about our salvation. Make a note to, take, uh, to go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Through in three on a regular basis. Lay aside every weight that comes your way. And the sin that does so easily beset you. Look to Jesus. Look unto Jesus. When we look at the humility of Jesus Christ, we are confronted with the power of obedience. Jesus learned from the things that he obeyed. Now, in our struggle for life, in life, I don't think there's a Christian on the planet. You say, do you want victory? Oh, yes, I, I want victory. I, I want to win over sins. I want victory. You know what the price of victory is? Obedience. Obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jerry Bridges, in his little book, The Pursuit of Holiness, said this. It is time for us Christians to face up to our responsibility for holiness. Too often we say we're defeated by this or that sin. No, we're not defeated. We're simply disobedient. It might be well if we stop using terms like victory and defeat to describe our process in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. 
When I say I am defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I'm saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I am disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may in fact be defeated, but the reason we're defeated is because we've chosen to disobey. It's a wonderful day when we take responsibility. I have sinned. So, we go back to the early verses of Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you. A little bit later in chapter 2, do all things without murmurings and disputings. There's a call to action here. There's a call to obey the Lord. There's a call to walk in the steps of Jesus. And we can do that in Christ because the Holy Spirit lives within us to empower us. There's a whole list of things in Romans chapter 12. And it shoots down so many of the unresolved situations that we have. Got some people not treating treating you right? Yeah, let me tell you what they did to me. Bless them which persecute you. Recompense no man evil for evil. Avenge not yourselves. If your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. In so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on him. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Pastor, you have any idea how many times you've spoken that from this pulpit? Not enough. I still need it. Humble obedience, the price of victory. One of the things that would be very helpful for us, and we're coming to the Lord's table, is to deal with this reality. Almighty God is the supreme model of humility. Now that's stunning when you think about it. Psalm 113, 5 and 6. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? He's the mighty God. Who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on the earth. And Jesus, as we've been seeing in Philippians 2, humbled himself all the way to the cross. He's the source and the chief example of humility. So join, and I don't know who first said this in my hearing, but it's a great statement. Humility is our greatest friend. Pride is our greatest enemy. Isaiah 66, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, that is humble, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. If I'm trembling at God's word as a Christian, I'm going to be yielding to his word. Excuses are now gone. 
I'm going to be submitting to God's word. To this one will I look. He who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. Or to put it in the terms of James chapter 4 verse 6. God gives grace to the humble. When God says he looks to those who... Would you like to go into this coming week having some assurance that you're going to experience the grace of God? He gives grace to the humble. So you come to me or I come to you and I say, what is it that I can help you with today? Or maybe we come to the Lord and we say, uh, uh, we're talking to the Lord and we sense in our spirit that God is saying, well, what can I help you with today? Well, Lord, I need help with my spouse. Or you can put somebody else there. Or some other fellow human being. You wouldn't believe what they are doing or not doing or how they're acting. Now, what can I expect God to answer? Your request is full of pride. God resists the pride. God will resist you. On the other hand, someone comes and prays and, and says, Oh God, I failed you. I failed to respond with the Spirit of Christ. You gave me an opportunity to demonstrate Jesus Christ to my family, to my co-workers, to whoever. And what they got from me was my flesh. Or what they got from me was behind their back, me bad-mouthing them. Oh God, help me to honor you. I have failed you. I commit myself afresh and anew to walk humbly in your steps. Now how do you think the Lord is going to answer that prayer? I give grace to the humble. I'm going to give you grace. Do we want to walk out of here today and be a recipient of God's grace or of God's resistance? Do I really want to resist almighty God? You know, there's a, there's a lot of things that uh, God doesn't like. God hates. He hates all sin, but sometimes he puts an asterisk by some of them. He has a list of them in Proverbs chapter 6. And one of the things that he hates that's an abomination to him is a proud look. And then Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to God. The word abomination is a strong word. That's just, this has got an asterisk by it. God really doesn't like it. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. 
Again, God, God not only hates pride, he opposes the proud. He repeats twice in the New Testament, James 4, 6, God resists the proud. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, God resists the proud. Luke 18 gives us an example of two men who went to pray. A Pharisee prays by beginning to list all the sins that he did not commit. And to thank God he was not like the publican. A prayer that was full of pride. Pride on display. The publican was so broken he could not even look up. And he beat upon his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which direction am I moving in? Where do I fit into this example? Am I like the Pharisee, quick to point out the real or imagined sins of others? Or am I broken over my sin, crying for mercy? Again, we have this great need. We have no greater friend than God's mercy and grace and humility no greater enemy than pride. So our great need is to mortify pride and to cultivate humility. Well, how do you do that? Would we own up that in spite of, I think, I think really, uh, you can be in a, you can be, you can be uh, living in a penthouse and driving five different Mercedes and something else and whatever, or you can be living in a hut. You're not immune to pride. And you'll need humility. As a Christian, how do I cultivate humility? Behold Jesus. Behold Jesus in his incarnation. Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2 are for 12 months out of the year. It has nothing to do with a holiday system. It has everything to do with how to live life. Jesus modeled it. God Almighty has modeled the way of humility. Behold Jesus and Behold him in his birth. Behold him in his death. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of years ago, put it this way. There is only one thing I know that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me in the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and to especially contemplate his cross. In just a moment, we'll sing... When I survey the wondrous cross, great things happen in my heart and soul when I survey the wondrous cross. That's a part of the blessing of coming to the Lord's table. We're beholding the Lamb of God, and beholding Him, we're metamorphosed more into His likeness. But Martin Lauren Jones went on to say, When I see myself as a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me. I'm humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give me this spirit of humility. 
John Stott said, all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited, visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. And I would add that God has designed that at Bethlehem and Calvary, we search out the mystery of his humility to win the battle against pride and selfishness and anger and lust and all the rest. The Holy Spirit points us to Bethlehem and to the cross to be astounded at the example of Jesus Christ, to be called as Ephesians 2 calls or uh, Philippians 2 calls us to walk in his steps. But again, the first lesson is to come to him for his atoning sacrifice to cover your sin. Are your sins covered with the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ? In his humiliation, he shed his blood for sinners. If you sense and know in your heart you're a sinner... That's a good thing. Flee to Christ. As a Christian, behold him. Behold him and you'll be metamorphosed more and more into his likeness to the glory of God. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for the wonder of who you are, of your amazing grace, of grace greater than all of our sin. We thank you for the wonderful display throughout the Bible of your amazing grand humility and especially as displayed by Jesus Christ who humbled himself all the way to the cross from Bethlehem to Calvary. And we come to your table here in a few minutes. We want to humble ourselves before you and say, thank you, Jesus. And I want to walk in your steps more than I've ever walked before. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.